everyone, and thank you for joining us here on a new season of Lighting the Pipes. Welcome back to the show. It's been a little while since we've been together reading. Myself, Scott Powell, and my uh, my co-host, Joshua Taylor. We have been reading behind the scenes, but uh, not for the podcast. And it's, it's great to be back, Josh. We've got a fantastic reading list to share with our listeners and each other. I'm really excited about, uh, about the upcoming season of books and reviews. And of course, more noir films, too, because uh, while the reading side has taken a break, we have managed to, uh, to produce a couple of the, the noir episodes that you've been uh, taking listeners down. So welcome back, everybody, in full. Welcome back in full to Lighting the Pipes. Josh, I hope you're as excited as I am to get uh, to get cracking here on this very chaotic first book <laughs> back. I am excited to get this book over and done with, if that's what you're referring to. <laughs> I didn't say but that. I am looking forward. I am looking forward to the um, discussion that we're going to have too. I think it'll be interesting. Uh, we have an author here that is very well known, uh, mm-hmm. a very high caliber author, and this is probably mm-hmm. a story that she did. No, this is a story that this author has personally disowned um it's not included in any of her bibliographies but somehow hard case crime they managed to to dig it up and get the rights and publish it so Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. here it is here so the author we're talking about is joyce carol oates and the name of the book is the triumph of the spider monkey including uh no which also includes a novella that we also read on top of that the novella was called. I forget the name of the novella now. Did I have even the novella is not even mentioned on the front of the book here? Uh, <laughs> Jewel's wacky adventure. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like Pee Wee's big adventure. No, it's called Love, Restless Love, or something like that, isn't it? Love, love careless, careless love. There you go. Love, careless love. Is that a line <laughs> from a song? I can't. I can't recall. Maybe one of Bobby's songs. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. So this is we'll this was an interesting it. and frustrating read for me. Um, it was one of those situations where we're, I think I was pulled back to when we were reading Noir, where I'm just like, okay, I don't really get the point of that. And I think you could have mm-hmm. said this in a different way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There are passages and sections of this book that I actually have found really interesting. But mm-hmm. over as but as a whole... Uh, well, you'll you'll see in my in my review. Okay, well, let, let's get into it. We've welcomed everybody back for a new season of reading. This is the first of several great, interesting, discussion-worthy texts we're going to look at this uh, this this series on the show. And uh, yeah, you know, buddy, it's one that I picked up when I was in London with my wife uh, a few months ago. I sent it to you, I think, along with a couple of other books, and it was just the sort of thing that stood out to me. Interesting cover, very pulpy, very 60s. Um, This young man with a guitar kind of leaning against him and a machete in his arm. And there's this kind of casual um, embrace that he's being served up by this uh, scantily clad lady, heavily made up. It doesn't doesn't look like a comfortable scene on the front of this book. And uh, It's like a really awkward, like... Hardy Boys cover or something like that. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, yeah, awkward plus. Um, <laughs> the and, Hardy and Boys Joyce have grown Oates. up. <laughs> Joyce Carol Oates is an author that uh, I knew a few things about um, growing up in Canada, though she didn't grow up in Canada. She's from New York, no. I think, originally. But she did yep. teach at the University of Windsor. And I also know 
that um, her, her story, her 1967 novel, A Garden of Earthly Delights, that sort of social class novel set in Kentucky, was quite a popular story. Uh, Blackwater, maybe um, one of her most famous American novels, published in the early 90s. I want to say that was 1991. You can fact check on me. Maybe it was 92, but that was a Pulitzer Early, final early 90s. Early 90s, anyway. That was based on uh, Ted Kennedy and the Chappaquiddick incident, you know, of, of right. the, the death, the, the car accident and all of that. And, of course, she, she's written so much. A very prolific writer. Uh, the Falls in 2004 she, is also a well-known She writes one. a lot. Yeah. She yeah, sure she, does. She, and 80, 85 years old now, I think, our, our, yeah, uh, our friend it, Joyce. Yeah. According to Wikipedia, 84, because she was born in uh, okay. Yeah, born in 1938, so yeah, 84. Right, well, who's going to argue with uh, Wikipedia? Um, and she's still teaching, mm. apparently. Awesome, Princeton, right? Princeton's where she worked. Um, I'll mention that into the. I'll get it when I get into her bio. Okay. Uh, okay. Cool. She's no longer at. She's no longer at Princeton. I believe she's mm-hmm. with UC Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, anybody who's uh, a fan of Princeton, go Tigers! They just had a great run in the NCAA tournament. They were knocked out at the Sweet Sixteen round, but yeah, really surprising run there in March Madness. Anyway, uh, back back to the book. Back to the book. So, Josh, fast facts on Joyce Carol Oates. We like to start our episodes with new and returning authors by doing some fast facts or context. What have you got on this uh, enigmatic, curious artist? So when I first saw this book after you sent it to me, the name Joyce Carol Oates, it sounded familiar. I couldn't mm-hmm. figure out why that was. Mm-hmm. And it was only until I looked up her bibliography after finishing the book, did the name, you know, click for me. She was the author of Blonde, which is AKA mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. movie with Ana de Armas in which she plays Marilyn right. Monroe. Yeah. And which I read was A, not great. And B, very <laughs> disturbing and takes a lot of historical liberties, apparently. Um mm-hmm. Okay. Both the book and, and and the film version. The film version was by Andrew Dominic. Now, a lot of people aren't very familiar with his works, but he's an interesting filmmaker. Uh, he made this beautiful film uh, called The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. And that was shot by uh, Roy Deakins, I believe, as well. And uh, the cinematographer. And that if anyone, everyone hasn't seen that film, like it's probably one mm-hmm. of Brad Pitt's best performance. Casey Affleck is like, excellent as sam ford as far as robert ford this is this is the guy who killed jesse james right like and yeah if anyone hasn't seen it it's a western but it's beautifully shot it's long so prepare yourself for a slow burn but it's really freaking but anyways uh that's my movie knowledge sticking in there so sorry about that going back so yeah blonde wasn't well received but joyce carol oates novel was very popular when it was released you mentioned that Blackwater Chapadawick, so she does take historical figures and dramatizes them either fictionally, like she did with Blackwater by changing the names around, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. for the example in this story, she just like, nope, this is like Mrs. Marilyn Monroe. I'm gonna have I'm gonna dramatize some incidences and fictionalize some incidences in her in her life, but I also want to show how the you know the Hollywood machine chewed up women like this. You know, mm-hmm. think of like Marilyn Monroe, think about Judy Garland and all the drugs they gave her. Um, many different incidences and, and stuff happened in the in the in the classical days of Hollywood in the studio system. Um, I recently read Veronica Lake's bi- bio- autobiography, and there's mm-hmm. some interesting bits in there that yeah, would, would, I remember well you mentioning support. that on the um, on one of the noir episodes. Yeah, Blue Dahlia, so, perhaps I think it was. Yeah, 
yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the Blue Dahlia, which which she starred in, yeah. But anyways, uh, yeah. So how they chewed women up like them, like that's that's basically you know what the studio system did, and Joyce Carol Oates seems to have a bit of a fascination in that you know and it seems to be the so blonde you know that seems to be the very kind of thing that joyce carol oates is is drawn to in her writing this idea of survival of women who endure in not so ideal situations and mm-hmm. that's an understatement based on you know what happens to her characters in her stories and particularly like in blonde but her characters they get the world thrown at them and do whatever they can to get by with their own cunning i'm using the word cunning because that's what joyce carol oates said in her interview herself is that she likes female characters and male characters even uh, who, you know, get by by their own cunning, despite, you know, Mm. going through misery, they don't give up. They still, they still survive when they're put into a corner and we can prescribe this aspect to Bobby Goddison and triumph of the spider monkey. He's definitely someone against the world or believes he is. And is Uh indeed a survivor up until he gets the gas chamber or whatever happens to him. (laughs) We don't really know what's going to happen to Bobby (laughs) Goddison. Unfortunately, uh, the protagonist of our story here. So, have you read any Joyce Carol Oates? You 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 indicated that it was popular, like in your when when you were doing like literature degree and whatnot. She was, yes, she was talking about I, it. I did not read any Joyce Carol Oates, absolutely okay. none, bar a single short story that um, we were reading. And it was like my second year of university, I think. And I couldn't okay. tell you what the title of it was even, buddy, because she's written so many. Uh, I went back yes. through my notes, my lecture notes, trying to find them. I, I couldn't find it. I know I read one of them and it was written, uh, sorry, it was studied in the context of kind of like the macabre, you know, the... Yeah the kind of degradation of the human soul, that type of stuff. And it, it was, it was shared and taught in the context of one of those, uh, those lectures, but no, I, I, I can't, I can't say for, um, I can't say I've read anything by her. So that was another reason I kind of wanted and drew towards this. Cause while I knew of her as an author and as a, a Pulitzer finalist and as an important cultural figure, I also wanted to learn a little bit about her style. And I, and I also knew her more recently as just not somebody I followed because I, I don't use Twitter, but I knew of the press that she had managed to, um, she'd managed to garner during Trump's administration, a big critic yeah. of Trump. And uh, she is vocal or at least was vocal on Twitter. I know through his, uh, his tenure, in the White House, um, you got any updates on her and her social media profile? Is it still there? No, Is it still active? Uh, no, not at the moment. We can check that out, though. I can do a yeah. quick check. But going back to the biography, and thank you for answering that that question. I just wasn't sure if you read any or not, or even like a short story. But there's your answer. You have read a short story. Yeah, but, but again, that's but nothing pr- to get a tangible feeling of of her style. No. Okay. Perfect. So I was really excited to try to, to yeah, maybe, maybe to see what she's like as a crime writer, a pulp writer. Yeah, anyway. I can definitely see some, uh, what's the word? Uh, I can definitely see some potential in, in that mm-hmm. for sure. And I'm definitely intrigued to possibly like read one of her novels. I'm just saying that yeah. from the get go here is that uh, yeah. while I may not have enjoyed this novel as our review will soon reveal, I feel that um, it doesn't, it has not turned me off as not, it has not turned me off to her as an author is what I'm trying to say. And, and so, recognizing also, Josh, the fact that she kind of, you know, she cut herself away from this title and this experiment might also, you know, strengthen your interest in her as a writer. Because if she views this as a failure, if she views this as, as, as kind of the uh, the orphan she'd like to forget, then, you know, maybe she sees in it some of the same faults that you do in terms of 
you know, her rearview mirror anyway. The novel itself is Bobby Gottenson abandoned in a bus locker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, let, let's finish until, the... Uh, until Hard Case found it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let, let's... Uh, oh, boy. Let's finish with the fast facts and bio before we get into that. Yeah. So Joyce Carol Oates was born uh, June 16th, 1938 in Lockport, New York, uh, it's, which is part of Niagara County, adjacent to the Erie Canal. She spent her childhood outside the city in a town called Millersport on the family farm. Her mother's family traced back to Hungary, uh, and she raised Joyce and her two siblings. And it can be said that Oates deals a lot with mental illness and domestic violence and other nasties in her novels. And this can tie into her upbringing, because while her parents were decent people, I should mention her father was a tool and die maker, uh, but that mm-hmm. wasn't a very lucrative or high-paying job. No, so she was always kind of like so. subsistence, right above subsistence, you know, living in their farm yeah. and getting yeah. by that way. So that was the kind of life that she led, that, that she lived in her childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, mental illness, domestic violence, those are definitely things that revolved around her. Because uh, her parents were decent, as I mentioned. Uh, she, there was never really any history about her parents at all. You know, they were there. They supported her and, and her sis and her family. Now, her sister, Lynn Ann, was autistic, and she ended up being sent away because of it. And in fact, Oates hasn't seen her since mm-hmm. she was institutionalized in 1971. Now, wow. I don't know what type of autism that, they had, she, that this person had. I couldn't get into detail. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very different world upon how those conditions are, are treated. So... That's right. Yeah, nineteen seventy-one. It, make, it, it makes you wonder, you know, if Lynn Ann had, you know, lived in, you know, modern times, you know, would mm-hmm. she be in a totally different mm-hmm. situation, right? But well, that is was she still then. alive? Because if she's still alive, I, 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 I don't know. I, I, yeah. I couldn't find that out. Interesting. Sad. Uh, either way, it is very sad. Now she was very close to her paternal grandmother, uh, Blanche. In fact, as a gift, and one of the gifts that she would give Joyce was uh, the novel Alice's Adventures in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll. She was Uh eight years old at the time, and this fostered her love of literature. So when her grandmother died years later, Oates was devastated. Her mother had attended all her grades uh, in the the one-room schoolhouse that she now attended. It was a backwater farming community, and she had her grandmother and her books to get by. So her death was very you know, it was very debilitating to her. Uh-huh. Uh, and what's interesting as well as disturbing is that when her grandmother died, it was revealed that she and her siblings, not Joyce Carol Oates, but her grandmother and her siblings were nearly mm-hmm. killed by their own father in what would have been a murder suicide, but her father Oates, great grandfather, mm-hmm. uh, he only killed himself. Now, wow. it also revealed that her, that side of the family had Jewish heritage as well on top of that. And, on top of that, her paternal grandfather was murdered in 1917. And that's how her mother, who was of Hungarian birth, got adopted by another family and, and whatnot. So it's pretty wow. messed so up. Lots of shadows of violent death and psychological trauma. Not at all a peaceful family history in that respect. Yeah, 100%. Hmm. And next door, and this is probably something that imprinted on her as well, is that her next door neighbor's son, he actually burned down his house trying to kill his family and confessed to it and served a prison term for it. So wow. it reminds me, you know, of that story, um, the copper beaches, the, the Sherlock mm-hmm. Holmes story. And that's when they're on the train and they're going in towards, you know, like yeah. old Winchester, yeah. old, in- old Winchester, the old capital of, of Saxon England. Watson's like, Oh, isn't the, isn't the countryside so peaceful and pleasant. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Holmes is like, 
I fear more what happens in these small towns or these houses in these in these yeah. small isolated towns more than I feel or fear about what happens in the city. Because at least in the city, you can whack a mole the crime. You know, you can go after. That's it, right. But yeah, you don't yeah. know what's happening in these small in these towns. You know, in these small it's, towns, in these small yeah. communities. You know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that we. Um, I, I taught the adventures of Sherlock Holmes this year with my seniors. Um, well, my I guess you call them fourth forms or. They're um, grade tens essentially, and we talked to Copper Beaches. And just last week, I I was kind of doing some revision for exams with the kids and talking to them about that. And we we did just talk about that again. You know, this the the interest and and the very modern point that Holmes makes on the train too. It's that in in the country, nobody can hear you scream. Uh, yes, there's a lot of there's a lot of violent people thrown together in a city. But there's also a lot of help and a lot of good people in the city that you can turn to. And there's usually witnesses in the city. And yeah, that, that's that's an excellent phrase to, to pull out there in uh, in detailing the horrors of a rural life. Because it sounds to me as though Joyce Carol Oates had, uh, you know, kind of a front seat to a lot of them. Yeah. There's a movie I watched recently, um, On Dangerous Ground, by uh, Nicholas Ray. And the film is about this cop that who was very violent in his job and because his soul was being sucked out of him because he didn't know what he was doing it, why he was doing it anymore. So mm-hmm. he gets sent up North. Uh, they don't really say where, but he's sent up North somewhere to solve the murder of a young girl. And basically the father of the young girl, he doesn't want the city involved. He doesn't want the police involved. He just wants to kill this boy who's mentally ill, this mentally ill young man who did it accidentally or in some fr- form of frustration, he killed this young girl. I'm um, not sexually or anything like that. And so the situation is, is that the character has to deal with this angry father who doesn't care about the, lo- this, the city law. He only cares about, you know, avenging his daughter and getting it done. And it gets to a point in the story where, like, even the father is like, oh, my God, it's, it's, it's just he's just a kid. Yeah. You yeah. know, uh, but it just kind of reminded me of that, too. It's just that those small town sort of uh, totally. attitudes and the, the lack of law. It's almost like you're in the Wild West, you know, like just because you have a badge, people will listen to you. But yep. the moment that yep. you don't. That, that that badge isn't working for you you take that yeah. person out and and become sheriff yourself right so that's right yeah. yeah law of the land exactly so in her teens uh joyce carol oates graduated to more advanced reading like the bronte sisters dostoevsky faulkner hemingway uh, and also a little bit of henry david thoreau but by this point she already started writing with another glyph another gift sorry uh blanche had given her before she passed away and that was a typewriter. Hmm. So she, she went to high school, the first member of her family to do so and to graduate and worked on a school paper when she was there. For her post-secondary education, Oates attended Syracuse University and was exposed to further literary luminaries and inspirations, Kafka, D.H. Lawrence, Thomas Mann, and Flannery O'Connor. This obviously compelled her writing. When she was 19, she was already winning scholastic awards for her writing. She was the head of the sorority and graduated BA, BA Summa Cum Laude in English. That was 1960. And she followed this up with an MA from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1961 and was working on her PhD, but stopped her progress into academia for this moment by deciding to become a full-time writer. 
So we have this young woman who has decent parents, a loving grandmother with a tragic family history. We have all the people of this farming community, the boy who confessed to arson. We have her love of reading, starting with a fantasy novel. We have her grandmother giving her a typewriter and Oates breaking out the child stuff and reading the Brontes and the Hemingways Mm -hmm. and writing and writing her way to a university degree, winning a short story contest because of that. So it's no wonder, you know, with all these influences, all these inspirations compelled her to take on writing as a career. And even though she did take it on as a career, she was still half one, she still had one foot in the academic community, even so, because after she graduated from high school, sorry, from, uh, from university, yeah, yeah, from university and got her MA, uh, she sort of had teaching as a day job. So in 62, she taught at Beaumont, Texas for a year, and then she moved to Detroit to start teaching English lit at the University of Detroit. At this point, she was married, and she married a fellow student from the University of Wisconsin-Madison named Raymond Smith. Now, Smith died in 2008 from pneumonia, and his death nearly made Oates suicidal. Understandably, you know, she was incredibly Mm -hmm. depressed afterwards. Mm -hmm. Um, But the beginning of her writing career was tied to her passion with Smith, who loved reading like she did. So when he died, it took her some time to get back into writing. Yeah, So. yeah. Something she always later, associated with the relationship and with the man who she she married. Yeah, I can, I can see that. I can totally see that. Yeah, like they would get together and have their dinners, and mm-hmm. she would just they would just talk about books they read and and literature and and every and everything surrounding that. Right, like they were they were like this. You know, I'm crossing my fingers together. Like yeah. they were they were tight, one hundred percent. One of her later inspirations was Sylvia Plath, particularly the the Bell Jar. Now, we know Plath ended her life eventually, and in relation to that book, Oates rejected how the heroine was suicidal, and she went back to her notion, you know, of strong female characters who can puzzle themselves out of terrible situations and, again, endure everything set against them. But when Smith died, it struck her so deep, uh, it struck her so deep, you know, these influences. So Mm -hmm. going back to the start of her marriage, the start of her career, her first book soon followed, a collection of short stories by the North Gate. That's what they're called, By the North Gate. It was published by Vanguard Press, who was pretty loyal to her throughout her career in 1963, right after she had settled down in Detroit for that position. But Oates and Smith would not be there forever. In 1967, the Detroit race riots and the Vietnam War compelled the liberal Oates and Smith to take a teaching job across the river in Windsor, Ontario, Canada. Oh, interesting. I I was wondering how she came to Canada. And so it is linked to her feelings of the American government at the time took a post across yeah. the across the border very cool the, did she the ever Nixon get citizenship government yeah yeah i did she ever? i i i don't think so but I, it was never okay. mentioned in what i in what i've re- researched anyways did she um, move from detroit josh or did she just drive the border every day i think they lived in canada like they moved across i, I believe okay. that's why I right yeah now in canada she and smith founded a literary magazine called the ontario review Right. Its goal, or or their girl, was to bridge the gap between American and Canadian literature. And for those of us who read Canadian lit, one of the great themes of Can Lit <laughs> is sur- is survival. So, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> now this is a big thing in Can Lit because that matches up with the gritty heroes and heroines of Joyce Carol Oates. Only mm-hmm. substitute the sublime or war with domestic violence, sexual abuse, mental illness, and an array of relatable traumatic situations, and you have can lit in a way right mm-hmm. so this endeavor led to her own publishing company ontario review books uh, which she co-managed in the 1980s with smith by that point though she had gone back to the states um, okay 
Yeah. I'll get to that. So back to her literary career, her first novel with Shuddering Fall was published in 1964. In 66, she published a short story called Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? It was dedicated to Bob Dylan. So already you can see where she lands politically. Mm-hmm. Even to this very day, going back to that, she is liberal tour de force on Twitter, particularly active since 2016 when Donald Trump came on the scene and she has been a fervent opponent of his administration. Coincidentally, this is the same year she started teaching short fiction courses at UC Berkeley through spring semesters. So I wonder if there's something that kind of brought her back to mm. life, you know, Interesting. afterwards. Yeah. 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 She's a bit of, she's sure. a bit of a rebel. Um, <laughs> writing and having something to light a fire in her, you know, her life has re- was re- reinvigorated even at that age. So to this very day, what I understand anyways, uh, to this very day, that's what, that's, that's what I understand. Now, as we mentioned, she's 84 years old, you know, since she's still doing it, apparently. Um, Mm -hmm. Going back to the Bob Dylan-inspired story, it was her listening to Dylan's It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. She based the story on Charles Schmid, a serial killer known as the Pied Piper of Tucson. So you're wondering, you know, did this put into motion her diving deeper into these themes with Triumph of the Spider Monkey? It's a good guess. Maybe somewhere between leaving Detroit for Windsor, she put that story and this novella together. But we'll, we will never know because she has completely disowned that book. You check her bibliography and you won't find it. Quote, unquote, the most disgusting book I ever wrote is a... Su- su- I, I, that's what she said. Someone mentioned this on a Goodreads review. I, so I'm assuming mm-hmm. it's l- legitimate. Yeah, but, who knows though. <laughs> you know, is it disgusting? Is it disownable? I mean, mm-hmm. you decide, I suppose. It's strange to talk about this book and this author because seeing how acclaimed she is and reading about the themes she wrestles with in her writing and the course of her life, this book seems mm-hmm. like an outlier. It the does. Author is it known, totally does. Yeah. Like the author is known for a garden of earthly delights and the rest of the Wonderland Quartet. There's Them, uh, The Falls. Uh, she wrote in the Gothic tradition. She wrote We Were the Mulvaney's, which was adopted into like a TV series. She wrote Blonde. After yeah. her sin at Windsor uh, University, she took up a position at Princeton University in 1978, and she mm-hmm. was there until 2014 when she retired to huge accolades. And in her career, she's published 58 novels, some of them finalists for the Pulitzer Prize, and somehow Hard Case Crime got a hold of this <laughs> anomaly in her career, got the rights, and the author won't even acknowledge it. And that itself is just amazing. And just It is. It's, it's yeah, absolutely wild. amazing. And on the back yeah. of that excellent introduction to her as an artist and her biography, thank you. for which I thank you, on the back of that, buddy, uh, I'd just like to say that, you know, us doing this book, it, it's not like, oh, let's go find out what Joyce Carol Oates is all about. This is not us saying that this is what she's all about. But to be yeah. honest with you, until we until you we, we, we get into it, I had no idea she felt so strongly against the text. And that's what I love about these kind of random choices that we do here on Lighten the Pipes. It allows us to explore not just corners of crime that we know a lot about, but we're continually finding out new things, learning and sharing new things about these authors through a filter that's relatively, I hope at least for listeners, relatively fresh. Yes, we lean into some favorites, but we also do things like this. And I I love that. So I I think that while it is, as you say, an outlier in her life and her output, and it's it's certainly a more chaotic story than we're used to looking at here on the show, I'm delighted that we're starting the season with it because it's something different. It's something really unique. And I hope it does breed not just between us, but uh, among listeners as well. Some some interesting comments, some interesting discussion and opinion. So, yeah, um, Triumph of the Spider Monkey. Let's uh, 
Let's crack the covers, buddy. All right, well, uh, a poison chalice. It was down to me to, uh, to to try to iron out a plot summary for this thing. Um, okay. And I... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't I, I, I didn't manage to do so with um, the expediency, uh, the form, the reliable structure and whimsy that uh, listeners and yourself might might have been used to. Unfortunately, this um, this book does not lend itself well to a plot summary. Those of you who have read it uh, will will uh, I'm sure attest to that point. Josh, I know you'll certainly agree, but, Thank you, know. you for giving me the biography. That's all I have to say. <laughs> yeah. Well, not, not to be, uh, you know, not. what am I trying to say here? Not to be um, defeated. Not to be defeated. I, I went out and gave it a shot. And so what I'm going to do here for you now, buddy, and for listeners, I'm, I'm going to take you through the strokes of the stories. Um, I say stories because, as Josh outlined, we have The Triumph of the Spider Monkey, about 160 pages, a short novel. And then we have about another 100 pages or so, uh, of this novella so we'll go through first triumph of the spider monkey and then i'll give you some information on the second text because there are connections between them so okay strap yourselves in the troubled story of bobby goatson or goatison maniacal protagonist of the triumph of the spider monkey it does start as josh says when he was abandoned as a baby in a bus station despite being an infant Godson's narration remembers it in angry technicolor and surround sound, right down to the grunts and the smelly huffs of the uniformed man who drags him from the locker. From the start, Godson wants us to know that he's a victim. He has a hankering for hate and blame, and as we move beyond the nativity opening, Joyce Carol Oates presents a distorted and a fragmented terror of a story. Godson's narrative voice lacks a straight-ahead approach, or really any linear grounding at least in a traditional procedural sense. Instead, it meanders back and forth from present tense courtroom scenes where prosecutors interject with opposition to the narrative's expanded flashbacks, which, though reflective of them, they feel quite disjointed from the crimes and the consequences that Bobby is being called upon to defend. The plot is as twisted as the criminal mind itself. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible to iron out the story, just that such a decision might be surplus to need. It wouldn't necessarily achieve much. And I think this, Josh, is principally because Oates' purpose with this story seems, at least to me, more married to stylistic exhibition and less whodunit kind of organics. She wants to offer readers a ticket into the horror show mind of her killer through structural enterprise and experiment. Oates employs a ferocious and unreliable stream of consciousness here as Bobby reveals his convoluted story. But like I said, it's not impossible to unknot this tangled skein. So, in the spirit of plot summarizing, here's a punctuated tour, a punctuated tour, everybody, of the plot's major moments. Bobby is abandoned as a baby in New York City. Bobby moves through abusive foster homes in and around the state of New Jersey as a youth. Bobby suffers torment in high school with spates of failed social service therapy. Bobby is a victim of rape and sexual assault at the hands of a black gang. Bobby starts his life of crime, jacking cars and breaking into homes. Bobby starts his revenge against mother figures and females, forgetting most of the details of his crimes. 
Bobby feels he's misunderstood and underappreciated as a musician, from whom great songs have been stolen. Bobby commits a couple of lustful murders, flees his crimes, moves to California, pursuing his musical career, supposedly. Bobby lives with Melva, one of a number of faux mother figures in his life who takes in strays and squeezes them for all they're worth, sexually, financially. Bobby gets wrapped up in a snuff film, taken advantage of by a film industry, if you believe his words, develops an axe to grind against Van Brew Studios and its namesake. Bobby reacts violently against a group of women who he refers to as plastic dolls. He kills several, but again, he doesn't remember most of his victims, only some details. Bobby is arrested and put on trial. Bobby escapes, flees the courthouse, kills again, but grows sympathetic towards his victim, envious of her peace, and longs for the transition into death. Bobby runs out into the public, asking for help. The chapter title that ends this part of the story refers to it as The Redemption. And that's about the best I can do, at least for the first story. You know what, man? That was well done. So, <laughs> Okay, good. Good. Okay. So you're with me there on that. All right. In that moment, I was like, okay, I did understand the book. Great. Excellent. <laughs> well, it, took me, it took me a while to kind of flesh that out. Uh, however, buddy, this renewed edition of The Triumph of the Spider Monkey, which hadn't been published for 40 years, I think that's one of the reasons Hard Case Crime was keen to, to, uh, to, to capture it. It's published alongside a companion novella that hadn't been seen before, entitled Love, Careless Love. Now, I'm not entirely convinced, pal, that Oates intended for these to be viewed as two parts of the same. Maybe she did, even though they orbit around the same world, because they feel very different. But for the yes. purposes of summary, I'll treat it separately. And then our chat maybe can look at any connections that exist, okay? Sure, sure, sure. So this this one is a little easier to follow. Uh, the narrative still bleeds a lot of character, thought, and emotion, but it feels a bit more reliable. The plot involves a young man, Jules, who, like Bobby, also moved out to California from the East, but this time without the baggage of murderous crime and mania. Instead, Jules is revealed to be pretty down on his luck and in need of work. He answers an ad and meets a man, Gansfield, who operates a surveillance go-between, sometimes working for intelligence communities, sometimes highest bidders. It's all a little bit blurry. No surprises there if you read the first part of the story. But he hires Jules to watch a girl across the street from the room that he's posted in. Gansfield admits to confusion over the whole thing, and he advises Jules to do only what he's being paid to do, and not to get too close. In fact, he pays Jules uh, with this wisdom. He says, The wisdom of the profession. Don't exaggerate the humanity. And I, I like that quote a lot for intelligence work, actually. Um, don't exaggerate the humanity. You know, Gansfield's warning Jules not to get too close to this girl. But he's lonely and isolated himself, so Jules really struggles to do that. After a few days, his target shows herself through the window and then walks out onto the street, and Jules just gets fascinated by her. He finds enormous beauty in her vulnerability, even if he doesn't fully understand it, and he begins to lust after her. The girl goes by the name of Dueline and is approached by Jules, who quickly goes off script in confronting her. She is a traumatized individual, that's very clear from their start, and she mistakes him for somebody else, a transporter who would be sent to bring her someplace north. Jules plays along with this, 
and agrees to take her out of his own misshapen sense of duty and sexual attraction. As the two drive north, Jules tries to get closer to Dueline and grows frustrated when she won't trust him with details of her story. In stages, her trauma is partially understood by the reader through references to that murder or the trial, and she reveals, without ever saying the words, that she was in fact one of Bobby Goatson's almost victims, a stewardess and a witness to the slaying of her four friends. The crime, which Oates tangentially detailed in the earlier stages of Spider Monkey, involved a sex orgy that Godison attended where he cut up some, quote, dolls, end quote. Although they have a lot of sex and pillow talk during their trip, things are physical. Jules eventually comes to realize that Dueline is too damaged even for his own lousy butt. He wants to be there for her, and he's eager to jump full and deeply into love with her, but does recognize that there are greater goods beyond his own envy and his own desire. He is decidedly not Bobby Godison. And yet, the final stages of their trip are marked by Jules's heightened awareness of death and destructive symbols, like plunging cars, deep rivers, and dangerous premonitions. Although he doesn't fall victim to his vices and insecurities like Godison does, Jules does teeter on the self-destructive. In any case, the car reaches its northern destination, and as promised, Dueline is left where she instructs him to leave her, near a log cabin and an outstretched tarpaulin, presumably to be collected by some more protective authority. She cites commitments to somebody else, but says goodbye with a promise to find him again soon. Hmm. On his way back, Jules is stopped by a motorcycle cop who pays him off for dropping her off, but warns him against interfering in private domestic disagreements. It's evident to all involved that this is not a police officer, and also that Jules overstepped the mark in bringing the girl himself and intricating himself into whatever little plan there was. Frightened and torn up over losing what he thought could have been love, Jules heads to Reno with his envelope of money, where he hits rock bottom, drinking himself to excess and wandering into the desert. Though considerably more trustworthy, as the story ends, we're still led to question how Jules' story wraps up. Is he in Nevada somewhere? Some hospital? A psychiatric clinic? Is this a fever dream, a hallucination born of desert dehydration? Or could it yet be a blocked fountain of his own repressed memories finally bursting through at the moment of near death? It's really unclear, and both narratives end this way. Very unclear. But I do think that uh, Love, Careless Love is a little more linear in its presentation than Triumph of the Spider Monkey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's kind of what I gleaned from it. I think there's like this book, there's like this book ending sequence though, with like in the hospital at the beginning and the end. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. There's some interesting dialogue there because I'm not sure whether or not like he's speaking from the afterlife because it's kind of implied that he's dead, but he's not dead. And uh, yeah, he's talking about his powdered bones and all of that sort of stuff. It's it's very weird. Yeah. Like, I just don't, yeah, I, I don't know what she's trying to communicate there. And maybe she didn't know either. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe she ran into Timothy Leary at the University of, uh, whatever, <laughs> at the University of Detroit there. And uh, maybe they, you know, took a, 
maybe Aldous Huxley did, you know what I mean? But uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe some mescaline uh, was involved here. Yeah. <laughs> it's very possible. Very possible. Well, you know, maybe it's, it's, it's not our job, is it buddy to, to try to figure out what Joyce Carol Oates was trying to do. Uh, we can no. and probably will say a few things about that, but I just think if we gesture towards treating the book as it exists, a book on its own, what, what does yeah. it offer readers and what might we pull from it? Good or bad to discuss here in the next little while before, uh, yeah. Okay. So I know that we didn't quite plan this out uh, fully, but what I kind of did was I gave one grade for trying to the spider monkey okay. and one grade for, uh, what's it called again? Something. <laughs> love, careless. careless love. Yeah. Love, yeah. love, careless love. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I didn't do that, but I'm quite happy to adjust to that. Like it, it's okay. I did give the book as it exists as a publication. I, I did treat the two as linked stories for the sake yeah. of scoring, but I'm, I'm totally understand how you didn't and why you didn't. Um, so yeah. it, it's, it's fine. I think our discussion will clarify those things as we go through. I can do a combo too. Like, you know, you know, yeah, uh, whatever, whatever. The numbers will, will all make sense no matter what. So. Yeah. I think in this case, they probably will. They're the only thing that will make sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start as okay. we always do, Josh, with uh, an explanation of our pipes. It's the acronym we use for scoring. And, uh, we, you know, it's been a few, it's been a few months since we've, uh, since we've done a book. So our pipe scoring uh, stands for principles, investigation, perpetrators, environs, and secondary characters. Now, this book has some interesting facets that fit into all of those, you know, interesting bits mm-hmm. of each of those. But uh, yes. let's let's start with the principles. Um, if, if you want to start with Godson himself, because whether we like it or not, whether we trust him or not, he is our unreliable narrator. He is the character through whose eyes we, we see this twisted world and landscape. Yeah. Uh, in terms of a character, I will say that Godison, I think, on paper, and not like on the paper of the, no- of the novel I'm talking about, but mm-hmm. I think in essence, his character is is interesting. And you can mm-hmm. compare him to a lot of like serial killer char- characters that became popular, you know, in, 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 in writing, like, you know, uh, after the 60s, 70s, and 80s, yeah. you know, it became popular, you know, to partic- to show the mindset of these particular people. Mm-hmm. Um, of these types of, as these types of individuals, and I think Joyce Carol Oates provides an interest, like a very fascinating mindscape, but also like I, I don't know, like I just think like if you were to say that this was the writings of a serial killer, I would believe you. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it just yeah. feels like the, the you know like that famous. I don't know. It feels like just a moment of like you know like that scene in Seven where they find John john doe's books and they open it up and they see like all of the crazy mm-hmm. writing and drawings and all this sort of stuff there yeah like to me that captures you know the minds that's the kind of mindset that i think um carol joyce carol oates is going for with bobby gottenson and i was able to kind of get his stream of consciousness slash like self-referential slash what you know i was able to follow that i, I think and your summary i think affirmed that for me so i was very happy to know that i was following it good that I'm glad that in a linear kind of way, the best I could his character. So in terms of the character presented, like the, the, how well she nailed the, I think the mindset of an individual like that, I give, you know, decent marks for that for sure. But as a three dimensional character, like I did sympathize with him when, when well Oates worked on that very well was indicating how much he suffered under the hands of institutions. Like the, like, first of all, being abandoned, 
Yeah. And then, of course, the foster system failing him. His mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and there's his, a definite criticism child... there, isn't there, uh, of the yes. foster system, of the social care system, because everyone that we see, well, this is again, I, I, and this is the big question, the overarching question. I, I have to stop myself, sorry, pal, because <laughs> everything we read is through that bigoted manipulated filter that bobby gives us and so of course he is the victim he plays victim from page one so i mean did the therapist really speak to him this way you know do the doctors really talk to him like this occasionally there's a nurse that pops up who is quite pleasant to him but he can't accept her warmth because he hates all women and so there you know i just wonder if the care system is failing him or if bobby is already too far gone and you know, as Oates writes, I'm too far twisted to accept any help. I just wonder yes. if she is she trying to criticize the care system or uh, you know what I mean? And, it's, it's, and we do mention, you know, in the biography that her sister did go to and was institutionalized yeah, for yeah. autism. Her next door neighbor, who was a young boy who tried to burn down his family. I mean, he was just a young boy when he did it. Right. So, I mean, that's something, you know, you know like I read somewhere about how like up until, you know, after adolescence, like, or even past, like, there were teenagers are still developing, you know, their minds and whatnot. And yeah. there are situations where kids will do things that are completely psychotic. And, and yet mm-hmm. afterwards, like, their minds could develop where, like, they're perfectly fine. But unfortunately, the stuff that they did during that time, you know, they just can't go back from that, unfortunately, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, that's why, you know, it's important to look after our children and make sure they develop pro- pro- properly, you know, in terms of mental health and whatnot. Um, so that you know they don't they 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 don't make those terrible mistakes in their in their childhood Mm -hmm. you know that they can't get back from you know yeah and Um, that's a that's a really important point and perhaps to give uh credit to the text knowing it in relation to her biography maybe that is something positive we can take from it a message that maybe the author is trying even if she can't articulate it or doesn't want to revisit it this this idea about um mental health needing to be you know, needing to be outed because in the 1970s, it wasn't, you know, when the book was published, it was, it was still very much a hush hush thing. As you say, her sister was institutionalized for autism and just, just that conceptually doesn't fit with what we know about mental health, what we know about development. I mean, the idea, it, it wasn't like, oh, she's going to, you know, get help. It was a total, um, backward, underfunded way of understanding the condition, you know, development. Yeah. Another like real life example I was reading about um, Jean Tierney, the actress. So one time at like some press, con- at some like premiere or something, a fan of hers went up to her and this person had like German measles and this mm-hmm. caused the, her child to end up being mentally delayed as well as blind and deaf and I think her husband uh, put the child away in a mental institution, like immediately, and like, and they just, you know, gone. Forgot about you it. know, yeah, that essentially it. Yeah, uh, I think Tierney was involved in some capacity, but there's only so much, you know, because of the beliefs at the time, mm-hmm. and you know, mm-hmm. it's and elect- electroshock therapy and all this sort of stuff, right? Like, it just changes uh, the it whole does, scenario. Com- com- well, that's completely. right. And, so the advances uh, in mental health yeah. that we've had over the past 20 years are just like uh-huh. incredible. And there's so many people who could have easily have been saved, you know, today compared to uh-huh. back then, you know? So. Yeah. So mental health is a frontier in this text. Absolutely. Now we're not going to be able to put words in Oates's mouth here. Um, other people yeah. who know a lot more of her work than we do might, might be able to. Uh, but I have, you know, 
I, I think there are some serious points in here to look at, not just because you're dealing with a maniacal figure, but because, as you said, the links to her family history are so very ripe. Yeah. I like also too, in the writing and how like it's that idea of a dissociation, I think, which I think, which kind of is, is Oates fighting for Bobby's humanity in that way by making mm. him dissociate between everything. Like he blames people for these issues. And really, I mean, it's your own self. You make your own choices. Right. But at the same mm-hmm. time, I think Oates is saying is that there's something to be said, you know, for institutions and how people like Bobby end up being yeah. Bobby, yeah. being Bob doing what, what they do. And um, it's putting blame someplace, but not all the blame should be placed on those things too. I mean, there's also the individual at hand, you know, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? But, you know, is that the case? I mean, I think that's the question that she's leaving. Like are people made into what, in, into these creatures or are they, you know, or, or is it just, are they, are they just evil from the get go? You know, so it's a nature versus nurture, nature versus nurture. Exactly. Now, so she's given us that. So she's given us the, you know, the mindscape of Bobby Gottenson. And to me, he's not a fully fleshed out individual that I think the writing allows him to be. But I think, you know, if if I were to grade him as a perpetrator, as a principal, I give him a three just because of the mindscape that got that um, Joyce Carol Oates delivers to us. Mm -hmm. Now, Jules, for example, I would give a two and a half. Out of, out of five for just on the basis of like i think oats writes him well i like how she talks about you know stuff his own perspective on things like like lusting after dibeline and and whatnot and i think she's getting into the mindset of you know the typical person and but she's also showing how like those there's hints and hints of the kind of like the same kind of darkness in jewels as there is in bobby there are yes Jewel, yeah but Ju- but Jules also in demonstrating like no this is not the way to do things like there's restraint mm-hmm. you know there's restraint mm-hmm. there's can control in some capacity you know yeah he exerts um, that control yeah yeah he exerts that control and that is that's her clearly showing I guess the difference between the two individuals there mm-hmm. so I, I found that kind of interesting so three for Bobby two and a half for Jules I would probably give as a whole maybe three out of five as principles for this story alone. Okay, well, that, that's a pretty generous mark, actually. Um, I, I went 2.5. I went 2.5 okay. for the um, the, perp- uh, the principles here of the story. I agree with what you're saying. I think that Godson has a lot of interesting fabric, you know, as a character. It isn't all fleshed out, and I think part of that is down to the structure of the book. I, I think it's impossible to get at him, because there are never, or I should say there are very few, sit-down scenes that are extended where we hear someone speaking objectively about him or he himself responding objectively. There is that stretch of prose in uh, towards the end where he does kind of talk almost clinically about himself. Um, I, I wonder if if you'd be interested here just to join join me with it. I'll, um, yeah, we got the same I, book, so... Yeah, we got the exact same book. I'm just going to find the page here for you. Sure. It's actually about halfway through, buddy. Uh, page 72 here. Uh, I'll just read this bit. It's it's one of the strange parts here where Godison's narrative voice kind of sounds like uh, like a clinician or, or a psychiatrist. It just bleeds into this. Godison's personal tragedy, in contrast with his professional social artistic tragedy, and we know it's still Godison because he's talking about his own artistic tragedy, was <laughs> that the gentleman with class who glanced at him and then gazed at him with immense interest were never the gentlemen he, Godison, gave a damn about. It was the others he yearned for, 
Women, all women, any age women, stared at Godison, and in a matter of seconds sank into a kind of open-eyed trance, sometimes offensive to him, even a maniac, has some moral values, but sometimes exciting, for despite his aesthetic distaste for females, his body often acted on its own, perhaps cynically, perhaps with a sense of humor, but in his deepest, clearest soul, Godison could never once not believe, uh, sorry, could never once not even once cajole his intellect into taking any of these females seriously. The one who died beside him and whom he did not abandon, she alone, whom he did not abandon in her death, breathing, bleeding herself out into the bedclothes, was not truly female at that moment, not female, not trapped in being a female, in that. She had been, like Gotzen himself, a creature of pure, pure, but of that revelation, Goatson cannot speak. Mm. It's this, this is really weird moments, and there's only a few of them where a new narrative voice seems to slip in, but it's not a psychiatrist. It is Goatson himself, because he, he's still talking about himself as a victim, but in the third person. So that dissociation, not just with yes. society and others, but with himself, that dissociative mind is, is really interesting. And stylistically, I mean, we'll talk about it when we get to the... Uh, investigation although i suppose we're there now essentially aren't we we're, we're using uh, goatson's character as the vehicle into investigation um it's i find, it, it's I find true. it interesting yeah like the dissociation thing like you mentioned how like in the summary and you know what we read in the book is that the uh, the, the mannequins that he's cutting up and stuff mm -hmm, these are of course mm -hmm. people that he's of course that he's, yeah. slot yeah. that he's slaughtering like he's part of the manson family um he's you, you, you know, I think this is Joyce Carol Oates kind of, again, bringing more sympathy to the character is that it's because if he was a evil serial, if he was just like over the top, like evil serial killer type of mindset, he'd be like, oh, the bloodlust was so high in me. And, you know, it's like true, I just yeah. wanted to rip her open or rip her apart mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. all like Control, this very provocative kill, yeah, yeah. like language, like something you would hear like uh, some, from a modern serial killer a, a, a book about you know a, a, more, a more modern book about serial killers or a film about mm -hmm. serial killers how mm -hmm. they get into those more lurid details but here he's dis he's dissociating himself from it he's making the victims not even alive you know like they're just kind of like like he doesn't recognize them as human now that's both also like indicates his mental state you know yeah. that he's mentally de deranged not necessarily evil but it also indicate, but it might also indicate that he's evil because mm -hmm. he's dehumanizing his victims as well. But does he need to dehumanize them in order for him to do what he does? But then yeah. he right. then says that he's, but then in his mind, he doesn't see them. He sees them as these mannequins, these dolls. So it's almost like he's just, he's again, he's disassociating himself from the crime itself. And, and this, I think is what allows him to create his whole victim narrative is that, but does he believe his victim narrative? I think he believes his victim narrative, I think is the point I'm trying to say is he believes it and he believes that he is defending himself and psychologists and uh, prosecutors, what have you, they can argue till they're blue in the face about what his situation is, but this is the way that he perceives it. And this is the way that Oates is giving it to us. Yeah, totally, man. I, I, I agree with you. And there are like a lot of victims here who he doesn't name as victims. They almost sound like oh, people who got in his way or individuals that he just needed to take care of. But see, equally, th there's a dissociation with himself and other people because he talks about having powers, you know? He talks about having powers and these powers that stop him from kind of being human, but instead elevate him to this other realm, this, uh, you know, and I don't know how... I don't know how um
or I don't know what the precedent is for that with uh, psychological killings and things like that. You know, this sort of glazed over moment where you don't see yourself as a human. But um, I don't know. Uh, I see what you mean. And and I believe yeah. that he does he does believe his own story. But it's it's curious because he says, you know, like he says at a couple of points that he detests liars. I've got it written down here somewhere. Um, yeah, he claims in the story to despise liars, and he asserts that he would not stand among them. But then you're like, well, most maniacs would say something like that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, he refers to himself as like a, a thought spasm. He refers to himself as a thought spasm. And then you think about the structure of the book and the narration of the book, and that's a pretty decent way to, to depict or, or, or to, to talk about the narration in the story. It's just kind of spurts yep. of of like thought or very little clarity and very little trustworthiness in this. It's it's kind of like he's taking you through this carnival of, uh, what is it, like a house of mirrors or something, you know, where like mm. you're never sure of what reflection you're seeing is right. Like, yes, there are people and places and names and there are historical grounded uh, moments too, like JFK's assassination is mentioned there. So you know where you are in place and time, but you never really yeah. understand it. And, and it's because he talks about his music career too, like something that's misunderstood. And he has the, he has the idea, doesn't he? Correct me if I'm wrong on this, but doesn't he think that there's this strong underground following that will someday emerge to prove his greatness to the world as a musician? You know, once, once it's revealed all the songs that were stolen from him and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm, no, the, I'm going all over the place, I, but that's kind of what I'm encouraged to do. I think I, I vaguely remember that. Yeah. There's a lot of fever dream aspects to this book sometimes. Yeah, so. yeah. Let me ask you, uh, uh, in terms of the structure, which of course we do talk about the style of the text in our in, in our investigation, because there is no investigation here. This is not a whodunit. We know who done. No, he knows exactly. who did it from the very beginning. Investigation in this particular is clearly what it's designed for in terms of our yeah, reading, our, yeah, our, our, totally. our our review is to talk about the narrative itself. To talk and, about the narrative yeah. Yeah, and the style. So how do you read the interjections of the courtroom? There's only six or seven of them throughout the story, really. The interjections of the, the district attorney or the prosecuting attorney who, you know, uh, I think who's there to, presumably at least, convince well, us I that most of what Bobby is saying is testimony. I read, I read the, the narrative that way. Like what we're reading about Bobby is what he says in court. I kind of read it that way. Did you, did you pick it up that way or did you look at it very different? I think, I'm, I think I was half and half. I think it's what he's saying in the court and to some extent. And then what's also what he's saying in his own mind and his own madness. Yeah. yeah so okay. because if you notice, like there's moments where like the, the prosecutor is like, well, or the judge is like, will the defendant, you know, please shut up essentially. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then you have a so lot then of ellipses it, and then too, it, don't you? That suggests yes. it drags on into his mind. That's true. It's a good point. Exactly. So I think it's kind of half and half. It's, as you said, like it's spurting out in and out sort of a, sort of a situation. Mm -hmm. And I think he's just trying to put together, you know, his whole life from this point on and where he is right now sitting on trial and he's defending himself. But at the same time, he's also second guessing himself. And I think the whole idea of the last chapter, the, the redemption of um, Bobby Gottson is him realizing, oh my God, I killed somebody. Like, it's almost like he, he's realizing in the courtroom now, mm. you know, everything that he's been through and stuff, and that he's actually killed a person. Because that was the first yeah. time that he that he yeah. realized that, that 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 person was dead. They weren't some mannequin or or something yeah. like that, right? Yeah. So so it's, it's almost like his redemption is him realizing that, you know, he did kill someone. But is that a redemption? Like, that's yeah. the question. And, and so is, is it, that it's open-ended. 
is that connected as well? Is that the triumph, the, the title hints at, the triumph of the spider monkey? Is the triumph his killings, his music career, his madness, or is the triumph the so-called redemption, that moment of realization where even as nebulous and as labyrinthine as it is on the page, is that that Bobby gaining some clarity over what he's done and how life is precious and how, you know, he rushes out to try to save the girl. He asks for the ambulance and all of that stuff because he realizes that he's taken the breath, the life, the blood from this, from this person. He lies with her and then he wants it himself, doesn't he? He wants that transition into death for himself. So it's, it's really, I mean, you know, you're dealing with someone who is playing with very heavy cards and heavy themes and, like there's something really skillful here, but equally it's so well, chaotic. Here's the thing. It's so chaotic that it's yes. It's I, I, is this a failed experiment? Is it ahead of its time? Is it ahead of our time? Is it more clever than a reader today can can access? Like I, I don't I don't know. I don't think so. It's hard, but it's hard to say. And going back to the idea of the redemption too. Now that I'm mm, thinking mm-hmm. about it, like so him remember that you know every time he killed someone like he escapes or goes off somewhere but with this victim he actually goes and gets an ambulance so that means that he would be on the scene the police would arrive they would come to their conclusions and so therefore he then put he basically almost martyrs himself for his own sanity or Uh something to Uh to be put on trial and probably facing the death penalty you know because of it so maybe in a way that's him realizing i've done these terrible things and now i'm going to stand for it at the same mm-hmm. time, I'm also out of my mind, so I'm going to defend myself too. At the same time, he wants <laughs> to right. get a sense of of justice, I suppose. Yeah. I, you can look at it both ways. I suppose. you can, yeah, you yeah. can, um, yeah. So I I gave two and a half for the investigation. I also, in terms of the writing, like I I, I couldn't. I wanted to. I had to pass it. I I, I couldn't mm-hmm. like not mm-hmm. fail it. I could. I, I couldn't fail it. I had to pass it in some capacity. But in terms of how you know how in how in- emotionally invested I was, how deep I found the story. The story is pretty straightforward to me. It, once you get through all of the, put all the pieces together, you know, mm-hmm. and there wasn't anything really significant about it. And obviously we know this, uh, this writer, you know, has done greater works than this. So I don't know. I just found like, if you put it together, it's a pretty basic story. So it didn't really impress me on that level, mm-hmm. but I did find passages as, you know, we discussed, I did find some passages really interesting, um, there were there was and, some, and nicely written. I, I was intri- nicely written. I was intrigued by the style of the writer more so than yeah. it was the story that she was telling. So in this case here, um, you know, I pass it. I pass Jules' short story too. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I give it a pass, like two point two and a half. That's that's what I'm doing. Right. Well, I tell you, I was a bit more generous than you were. In fact, in total, okay. I I went to three and a half. And I, I was oh, surprised. Okay. I was I was surprised here with this because I'm with you hundred. That would be me being generous. Yeah. That would me being. Well, that would be me being. being I went too to, generous. Yeah, I went there because of the style because I liked. I didn't like the chaos of the reading, but I did like her style, and I also felt like um, I went back and reread some sections, and I do find the stitching of both narratives. It it is comes through a bit cleaner when you go back and look for it. Because in Bobby's testimony, he does mention, as I'll share in a, in a few moments or a few seconds, he does share some of these connections. But I felt, Josh, the second bit of the book, more than the first bit, was more compelling. And maybe compelling is not the right word. Uh, certainly it was more linear. But it felt it felt almost like like playback. You know, there, was, there were moments in playback by Chandler where... Mm. 
where you've got him taking the girl for a ride and not getting the whole truth out of her and she's kind of victimized and I felt like that was a story that I could get behind and I was interested in to see if he would break her or if he would transform as a man you know in in accepting her quiet and you know because he essentially has the ability to become what Bobby does to take full advantage of her but but he never does Jules never does I I, I kind of found that interesting it wasn't great, but because the writing style was in both stories really stand out and experimental, I'm, 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 I just felt like a three and a half felt right to me. But I also, I was at a three probably before I found these little stitches between the two narratives. If you look with me on page 95, buddy, um, this is a great example for readers or who are following along at home or for, or for yourself. In the middle of the page, right, the prosecutor steps up uh, again in italic text. Bobby, all this is a lie. You know that you never met any of these people. They deny it. Most of them deny it. And if you weren't under indictment for first-degree murder for having hacked to death one Cynthia Price of Ca Pasadena, California, you can be certain that the Van Brugge Corporation would sue you for all you possess. I did meet him. I met all of them. It's on film, but I can't get a hold of the film and I can't get royalties from it. The girl from Pasadena has nothing to do with it. I don't know her. I met her in a bar. She followed me out. She was a stewardess for Transcontinental Airlines, and in my head, I got it mixed up with his airlines. I hate machines. I can't remember their names. Something lunched up in me, like a log lurching up to the surface of some fast-moving wild stream, and I thought, hey, why not? Hey, why not go home with this little doll and love her a little? And maybe, maybe she's a little of girl of his to put in another good word for you, Bobby because by then I was broke and desperate and everybody had slammed the door shut in Bobby's face. That is the girl that we follow. The stewardess. Yeah, we mean. She's the one that gets away, right? And she's the one, obviously, yes. that Jules is, is meant to transport to a witness protection or whatever the heck kind of crazy twisted thing that is. Um, mm -hmm. And so there are those little stitches between the two that I think make it interesting. But there's ultimately, no, it's not a failure. And maybe three and a half is a bit generous on the whole. But ultimately, there is no, there's no reconciliation in the text. And maybe that's artistically necessary, purposeful, whatever. But as a reader, you want there to be some sense of closure. And neither of these gives you a sense of closure. Only a sense of what if. Only a sense of, I wonder, is that what happens? Is this where this goes? Mm, you know? Ambiguity. Yeah, and, and it, yeah, ambiguity. And even at the end, right, like you said, is, is he dead? Is Jules dead at the end of this? Is he like the other victim of Bobby? Do you know, like in a strange ethereal sort of way, does he drive his car off that cliff into the river, Fox River that we keep hearing about all the time because he's now bereft of having this girl leave him? You know, I mean, it, you don't really know. Yeah. And then, like, and then why is she, having is a she fever dream of his autopsy. Like exactly. That. Is she, yeah, well, okay, fair. Maybe is that what's happening? But is then Joyce Carol Oates saying something greater? Is she trying to experiment with this idea of not just the crime and the criminal, but all of the different layers, the onion skin of influence that that touches upon? Mm -hmm. You know, we don't get anything about police investigators or courtroom, you know, stenographers, but you do get the girl who got away and you got the guy who's fascinated with her. And a few links of the chain before that, there's the killer himself. And so all these people who get kind of swamped into the... Um, that the enigmatic dust storm of, of crime and death, you know, she's, she's yeah. got something complex going on here, but it, um, it needs to be a little clearer to, to really be impressive. Yeah. It needs to have like that underlining 
moment where it all sort of connects, you know? And I guess as a reader, I mean, we, we are allowed to ask for that. Like we understand there are postmodern texts. There are things there that are meant to be ambiguous mm-hmm. and maybe this is the case, but I think in the way that this is packaged and in, in the way that it was written, I mean, hard case crime picked it up because they're looking at this as like another, you know, like pulp pulpy crime story in a way. And that's why they picked it up. And this is the closest thing I guess that Oates came to in this genre. Mm-hmm. And yeah. like, if you look at the the last story, uh, sorry, the short, the novella, the it is kind of. I mean, he's a private. He's technically like he's a private investigator, and he's following this woman. So it does have like those crime detective fiction noir. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you know, like. Um, but he's not really following her, is he? He's just kind of aim- aimless because he's unemployed and he's exactly. lusting. A- he's lusting after her, but the lust turns yes. to something he wants to explore more because he thinks he loves her. Yeah. You know. And this is just, it's interesting though because she's writing, but because she's kind of framing it in that sort of storyline, mm-hmm. it's interesting that like, no matter what, like he, he doesn't get the girl in the end and he, she's not like a femme fatale or anything or a spider yeah, woman yeah. or anything like yeah. that. But she ends up, he ends up, you know, either dead or in the hospital by the end of it. So no matter what, it, it, it led him down a dark path, you know, in some capacity. Absolutely. So it does kind of yeah. have a similar ending. It's just yeah. missing, you know, like all of the femme fatale aspects. It's missing the gangsters. It's missing the extortion. It's missing mm-hmm. all of the corruption. It's missing all of that. The moneyed motivation. But, yeah. All of that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's just going to like, it's, it's very linear in the way that. Yeah. Psychological. In the mind space. Hmm. And to yeah, nobody, exactly. for people who people who are interested in experimental postmodern prose, uh, multiple narrative voices, stream of consciousness, I think they will find a lot of interesting stuff here. And maybe this is for sure. I don't know how indicative this is of Joyce Carol Oates as an experimental writer. I don't know how much of this form and structure comes into her other works. Uh, others would know much more than I would about that. Perhaps it's something we can discover, you know, if we pick up another mm-hmm. crime novel and, and treat her work on the yep. show differently. But that's definitely here. And maybe if you're into that, you'd really like this book. But uh, let's move on and talk. Let's move on and talk perpetrators, because I got a question for you about this, buddy. Obviously, Bobby's sure. the biggest perpetrator and Jules in his own ways a perpetrator. But I want to ask you about the character of... Um, the character, he's a very elusive character here, a father figure, Danny Minx, who's referred to as old man by Bobby. It isn't really clear how close the bond is, if that was just a bond in prison, that w- or if this is actually a father figure. But they drive out west yeah. together for part of the way. Is he just an older criminal type that Bobby's learning from before he's ditched? That's, is there anything that's sexual kinda, going on there? Homoerotic? There's that like, line you- where, there is that line that he mentioned that like he effed him in front of these other two people that's right like yeah. i'm i'm wondering if, if there was some like uh like he was sodomy. an older prisoner sodomy kind of situation yeah like he was older in prison like he was an older convict and he was the younger so that's a kind of you know think about you know shows like hbo's oz or stuff like well, other yes. you know, terrible yeah. prison drama kind of stuff you know where that's probably a tangible situation shawshank redemption another uh-huh. example so it's very possible, you know, that, and, and he's experienced sodomy prior to that, as we know from the black, from the gang, right? The gang That's that raped right. him. So yeah. it's possible that, you know, that could be, that, so there, but for some reason, because they were in prison together, that developed a romantic bond, sort of a situation, a non-romantic bond, but it was Stockholm still a bond. sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. N- nonetheless. Mm-hmm. And so he just t- latched on him as the only father figure he could, you well, know? She, yeah. So, Cause he does credit him as the expression he uses is soul programming. He credits yeah. uh, Danny Minx as being a soul programmer and, and getting him on 
like understanding what's important in the world and what's important spiritually. So, yeah. I mean, is, is, is he Minx like, his last name? Like, is Danny Minx a name that he picked up? Because to me, Minx, that, yeah, to me, yeah. it feels almost like a feminine name. Yeah. yeah, it is. It's the feminine. Or, totally is. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, so there could be some oats could be, you know, going into like, you know, de deviancy and, and or, mm -hmm. you know, exploring that in a very subtle kind of way as well. Mm. Um, but anyways, we know that he, yeah, so he, I, I don't know if he's a perpetrator per se, but he's definitely wasn't help. Bobby should definitely not have been abandoned. <laughs> you know, that did not help his situation at all, but he was abandoned once uh, Danny had, had no no need for him, right? So if, if Danny uh, was dad, if he was the father figure, you know. His, well, if he if he was the father, if he was the father, whether or not he was, not or not, sure he was it's left but, to be said. Yeah. No, it doesn't make any sense because he was abandoned in a bus station, right? So why would mm -hmm. he even want it? Yeah, I, I don't think Danny was his father. I just think he was someone he met in prison or around at some point in his in his early life that influenced him into a, into a more hard into a more criminal mm -hmm. sphere. Okay. Well, what, um, what did you say then for perpetrators? I mean, we talked about Bobby already as a principal, but also as a perpetrator because he is. Um, did you see anyone else or did you talk about anybody else in that context or are you just going to deal with them in the secondary characters? I kind of just mentioned back, like as a perpetrator, yeah. I give it three for, for, for Godison because, you know, again, it goes, goes it's, it's kind of a mirror of the principal. R R R R yeah, yeah as a per as a perpetrator though i gave I, I gave jules a one <laughs> so as a whole <laughs> yeah. so yeah. as a whole i give you know i give the perpetrators a, a three i think okay. we've talked about in the investigation and in the principles you know all the stuff that we need to regarding the perpetrators mm -hmm. you know like mm -hmm. visually iconographically i really uh, the image of bobby goddison you know is this like music this, this musician slash serial killer with his guitar and then his machete that replaces the guitar because that guitar got broken. Yeah. Uh, there's some interest. There's there, there's some, there's some interesting traits there, you know, that could make for an exciting kind of uh -huh. Uh -huh. character in like an, in, in any other story. Um, you know, someone who could appear on, you know, going up against Hannibal or something like that. Mm, like it's mm -hmm, a, mm -hmm. a similar type of character or someone that Dexter takes out, you know, like he's definitely one of those characters that could be expanded upon and become really interesting and fleshed out. But, you know, so ultimately, I give it three. Yeah. I, I give it three for that. You know, right. it's, it's more of a, it's it's more than a pass, but you know, I think three is fine. I I gave it a pass. I gave it a pass because particularly for Jules, like I felt like he he was slimy and opportunistic, mm. and yes, he he does turn towards the he does turn towards the you know love, or at least he tricks himself. Maybe he's got his own psychosis, his own needs, his own you know mother issues or whatever he needs to have. Well, everyone has their everyone has their neuroses, right? And yeah. I think it, it gets it gets set in the in that in the sense that like you know, uh, but he he likes her because she's vulnerable. That's that, that's where I was going with that. He he wants to be yeah. with her because she's vulnerable and an easy target for affection, an easy target for lust. It's from the lust and the obsession that he thinks he's in love. It's not the other way around. He's not attracted to her for the right reasons. He's attracted to her because she looks strange and in need of some, yeah. something, you know? Um, yeah. I think that's, that's kind of why he's drawn to her, like, uh, like the wounded animal, you know? Yeah. I think she kind of knows that in the writing. I mean, you could say the other way, you know, that he himself is vulnerable in his own ways and he wanted to make a similar connection, but mm -hmm, yeah, you can, sure. I can also see it the way that you, that you described it as well. 100%. Well, in terms of environment, yeah. in terms of environment, I found this really splotchy. Um, I think that's 
it, in, environment, detail and setting, that's not what this author is interested in doing with this text, at least. She's not interested in bringing a place to life. The place is nothing. The place is secondary. It's, it's, it's wallpaper to the character. It is yeah. not something that influences the character. The character is coming in with his own engines, with her own baggage, and whatever the landscape is, grocery store, courtroom, you know, movie cinema whatever that's that's just what it is everything is really functional here it, it's not decorative like even even the murder scenes aren't described in any sort of um great detail everything's metaphorical no. everything's enigmatic everything is uh, hyperbolic there's no sense to the setting Ethereal, as, as it's littered yeah so i found this one really difficult to score as it exists in this book the setting the setting's a failure but in terms of the stylistic approach of the text, is that even fair to fail the settings? Because yeah. you know, they, he just kills where he goes. You know, he, he's opportunistic about where he strikes. He does try to cover most of his murders, uh, you know, at night or you know once he's gained close quarters to his victims. But it's not like she sets them up in in any sort of patience. You know, or with any sort of patient pen, she she just yeah she doesn't linger. Like, she yeah, they're paroxysms. Yeah, they're paroxysms of place and time and killing, and then reflections of and diversions of 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 a mental voice. It's um, it's yeah. really weird. Yeah. So I, I didn't know what to do with this. I I I went I passed two it. and a half. I went two and a half just yeah. because I didn't Same. know where else to go. Yeah, I felt that. Yeah, like we have to, in terms of reviewing the environs, this is one of those books that is just not environs friendly. Um, yeah. The environs, if you were looking into it in a cinematic aspect, it could be, you could, you know, put that into atmosphere. And sure, I think yeah. that, you know, she, she drives a very, but, I, but, but we're not. So I can't include that in terms of the environs because the way that she describes them, you know, are very eph ephemeral. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not really, we're there, but we're not there. It's almost like, as I mentioned earlier, it's like a fever dream. And yeah. yeah. It's, it's like, it's just not tangible. So, but I, I get that also that was her intention. So to me, I just think passing it two and a half, That's uh, fair. I'm ready yeah. to move on. I'm ready to, to move on from that. And I, and I, I'm, okay, I'm cool. happy with giving it that rating. And we'll, we'll just issue to our listeners that caveat that, you know, it, it's not us saying they're no good. It's us saying they're kind of non-existent. So we can't fail them because it's not, it's just not part of her design. I don't think with this story. So yeah. Okay, let's let's go on then to, uh, to secondary characters or supporting cast, if you prefer, for that last S in our acronym pipes. Um, what do you feel about the other people here who creep up and you know, like the Gansfields of the stories and and uh, what about Thelma? Is it Thelma? She's the one or Velma? I, I get. The, I, I'm uh, not Thelma. Um, it's Velma, yeah. isn't it? That that uh, it's Melva. It's, it, it, Melva. it's Melva. Melva. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That sort of. I I kind of visualize. Yeah, I kind of visualize Melva as almost like a Norma Desmond, you know, like uh, Gloria yeah. Swanson in, in uh, okay. the Boulevard, yeah. where like, you know, cause, because she pulls in William Holden and she wants him for her own reasons, except she also has her own kids as well. And yeah. she wants to adopt him. There's a creepy I kind of, think of, of like, her more as like a Fagin character, actually, like uh, yeah. a Dickensian figure who like uses and preys on all these men that kind of live in her commune that go out and do stuff yeah. for her. You know, like she sleeps with them, takes from them, but she also uses them and pretends to manipulate them and give them film opportunities. And I think she's, I think yeah. she is, is an icon of a rotten Hollywood. And I definitely yes. think, I definitely think that Oates is onto something there about celebrity, uh, you know, being like a mask to borrow a line from John Updike, a mask that eats into the face. I think that, uh, 
I think she's saying yeah. something about celebrity here with um, people who chase sure. it, like 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 Velma, or sorry, not Velma. Yeah, Velma. Yeah, it's almost like she was a victim of the studio system, and now she's victimizing pe- people. Yeah. You know, she's victimizing these young men in, you know, in in turn. You know, mm-hmm. not defending it. I'm just saying, is that it seems mm-hmm. like that's the trajectory that Oates is going for. So I found her interesting. Uh, she, I did find her. She interesting. was interesting. There was there wasn't enough of her though. There wasn't nah. enough of her. Um, and, and and of course, we're not going to get that. And again, we're going back to the environs. This is another category to me that I think wasn't really an issue here because mm-hmm. these characters were like MacGuffins or simply plot devices for the, the, the protagonists. So they didn't really have much functional value besides function. And that is about it. Even like, you know, Deleline, we get passages of her talking and whatnot, but she's just, again, like a MacGuffin for jewels. Well, I think and she is everything. a bit more, I think she's a bit more dimensioned. I don't think she's just a MacGuffin. I think we're meant to study her as a victim. We're meant to explore her trauma. We're meant to see it through the eyes of another person. And I do feel as though, Oates wants us or wanted us or, or regardless, I guess, authorial intent. But he can't matter. get over his own lust, right? He can't. No, but he can't, he can't get over his own lust. And what does that say about humanity? What does that say about us, like, hitting and taking advantage of the easiest targets? You know, like, let's go get these damaged goods. And uh, although yeah. he doesn't ultimately abuse and, you know, ruin her but further, wasn't it her he does think told, about it. Wasn't it her? Because just to clarify, though, in the, in the mm-hmm. terms of the dynamic of that relationship, sure. she's the one that had him pulled over the side of the road. She initiates the sex, not him, right? That's that. That's the thing. Well, they meet. They they meet um, outside the shop first. Like he doesn't yes. just pick her up first. But well, what what do you mean in terms now, of the sex? Oh, well, the the time when they first, you know, in, uh, when when they first get to get when they hook up. Uh-huh. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's when okay. like that's something that she, that she initiated. Oh yeah, but absolutely. She in, initiates it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I mean, the thing is though, he's taken advantage in the sense of he's not being honest with her because she sees him as someone who is not, you know, because what happens in that situation is is that he's pretending to be someone that he's not driving mm-hmm. her right. Mm-hmm. So. And, but eventually she doesn't even care about that because when what's his name shows up, uh, Stansfeld, no, what's his name? Um, Hans, I go back to get his name now. Damn it. Stansfeld. His name. Yeah. When he shows up afterwards, I guess he legitimizes, uh, Gansfield. jewels in front of her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. Like, I'm glad that you saw more to her than that. Um, I just found that she was like thinly sketched and, um, oh, she was I, totally, I, I, yeah. I think they, I think Oates could have probably given a couple more pages to kind of give out her view of it. And we don't even know what happens to her in the story. Like, is she dead under that canvas or not? Like what the heck is going on there? Yeah, and, well, um, what was going on there? Like, was she even under the canvas? Cause when he went back in the car to look, she wasn't there. And she would be, and she was, uh, yeah. And then she was rotting. And then they mentioned that she's not rotting. So like, I like how, I mean, what progression of time occurred, you know? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's really, it is, is, Yeah. I mean, was the author, you know, really clear herself? I, I, does does it matter? Uh, Are we spending more time on never, this than she did? Probably, you know, maybe not we'll the writing know of because, it. Certainly, but. Yeah, mm. we'll never know because those, that the part of her mind that wrote this book has been, um, vol- has been voluntarily deleted by herself. So <laughs> that's right. Yeah, or at least the part of her mind that she's aware of. Know. I'm just, you know, I'm sure. Things like this never I didn't, totally disappear. And then but we what, have like supporting characters like Minx, and then we have uh, Stansfeld, whatever his name is again, and then we have uh, I don't know the, pro- <laughs> the prosecutor I don't know comes why you in, find in and out. So hard. Yeah. 
Yeah. Gansfield, sorry. And then we have <laughs> the um, Gansfield. Thank you. Um, and then we have, you know, the the, the child therapist and uh, the dentist at the prison. All these yeah, different characters. Yeah, he was intense. Who, who, he was intense. But they're so biasly portrayed that you know you really <laughs> can't see whether yeah. like yeah. what was <laughs> true and what was not. You know, yeah. they're caricatures. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't Absolutely. pass for supporting characters. Okay. I, I gave it. A two. I did. I did pass it. I gave it a three. Uh, I just thought okay. that, particularly for uh, Dueline, I thought, I thought there was enough interest in there for me to be like, okay, like I know she can write a character, and she writes trauma well in terms of like the, the mechanisms of the, the character moving through things, like not wanting to eat, you know, the way she's she sits, her posture in the car. Uh, but again, listening to me, I'm leaning more towards the second part or the the, the novella, the the companion novella. In, in granting the generosity for that category. Um, so before we do final thoughts on the, on the text, Josh, let's do a total of the scores here. Uh, you are at a 13 out of 25, so just a pass overall, and I am at a 13.5. So we're very tight together on this book. I think we see it pretty much the same with a few little differences. And an interesting one to start the season, huh? Because uh, yeah. in some capacities, it doesn't really fit, but in other capacities, it's great for for discussion yeah. in our format so it's it's a really curious yeah, one I, um yeah. i i knew that it would be a great discussion reading this book mm-hmm. even though i didn't enjoy reading this book i knew that we would have a really um di- I, I had a feeling that we would be int- we would be going to different places interesting places when we discussed it so yeah you know and i think even though i'm who glad that, it, that we're over oh absolutely I, I i feel that you know with this book like if you want to get an idea of like Obviously, Joyce Carol Oates has some great books out there. So by all means, go check out her books. Check out, you know, like the Wonderland Quartet or check out, you know, Blackwater if you want a more or Blonde if you want a more historical, you know, thing. She has gothic novels she wrote in the 80s, even though she doesn't really call them gothic novels, but um, they're categorized as such. Um, she has a lot of interesting writing out there um, that I myself am intrigued about that, you know, that I might that uh, the one good thing this book did was made me interested in her as a writer. So mm-hmm. I would totally. be curious to, yeah. you know, I would be, I would be curious, you know, to check out one of her books in my spare time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and we did, you know, we did that, didn't we? Novel, when we read the confidential agent a yeah. couple seasons back, we ended up then going from that Graham green into a different one. So, I mean, the confidential agent was, was a good book on its own. I mean, we, I think we recognize that differently, but you know, these things do happen. They do, you know, way does lead on to way as Robert Frost says in his famous poem. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we can follow these paths later and yeah. Yeah. So, like if you're into as as Scott was saying into the more kind of like fractured uh, narrative and and you know in terms of like going into mindscapes and uh, getting that kind of voice in, in in your story writing, then you might enjoy this. If you like pulpy crime, you might enjoy it as well. Like you might find this interesting companion to other novels that are similar. Uh, but at the same time, like whether or not you find it entertaining, I think is a big uh, factor into this into this novel in terms of reviewing it so that's why mm-hmm. i gave it a pretty low review is because i just didn't find it entertaining mm-hmm. i wasn't really emotionally invested i was this is i also found it disturbing mm-hmm. and absolutely I just didn't see the, I, yeah reading more about the author and her experiences i understand the writing a little bit more now in terms of what she's going for yeah. particularly in terms of yeah. the sympathy as well um that's how she was portraying so that's a, a benefit for sure based on knowing the history uh mm-hmm. before then i was i found it like learning that information, it was a bit too lurid for me. But, you know, do we like writing, when we, when we talk about this subject matter, do we prefer a more uh, 
you know, third person narrative, like a detective novel, so to speak, when we deal with these things so that we can kind of dissociate them ourselves. But when we're put up front into the mindset of someone like this, it, it's very disturbing to us. Mm-hmm. It just goes to show, you, you know, how different types of authorial voice uh, perspectives can influence how you enjoy a story. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's an excellent way to, to kind of segue into my final points on the novel uh, about that, that fragmentation, that pers- that narrative perspective, because I want to talk, Josh, as my, my final point with you in closing, just on the dedication in the book. If you look at the dedication in this book, it is dedicated for those on the outside, for those on the outside. And I find that really interesting. I was listening to an interview, buddy, that um, Joyce Carol Oates did with um, the Danish um, museum, the Louisiana Channel is what, what covers it. And But it's, it's a Danish museum, an arts museum, and kind of like an arts magazine as well, I think, it comes from the museum. Anyway, from 2015, right? And she's talking about the writing process, but just upon reflection now, I find this stuff even more poignant, hearing more about her life and whatnot. I just wonder how applicable you think these comments are to the fragmentation in this narrative text that we Mm -hmm. we just went through, okay? Here's what she says. Mm -hmm. She says that, I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, there are quotes built within it. Normal people, normal people have a sense of normal, meaningful days that can be measured by and with other people in a shared experience. But in terms of loneliness and fragmentation or loneliness as a form of fragmentation. But when you're all alone, the day breaks up into small fragments because there seems to be no meaning to life. You're just getting through one minute to the next. It's very different Mm -hmm. to a healthy life. And I find that really interesting, you know, that idea of a fragmented experience because when you're a social being when you are as she says healthy she uses the word normal um you know when you're sharing your experiences with others you're less rooted to the moment like you can play your day back and be like yeah today was a good day here's what happened or no it wasn't such a good day here's what happened because of the people you saw the things the engagements the interactions but when you are alone when you are isolated like the characters here perhaps like characters in her own family history, life becomes fragmented. So the story you tell isn't a story about accumulated good. It's just a story that drifts by minutes leading to minutes leading to minutes. I I just can't help but think that there's some connection between that concept of loneliness as fragmentation and her dedication of the book for those on the outside. Like, I, I don't know, like maybe I'm just speaking as stupid or maybe i'm just speaking as a thoroughly now as she does in her text <laughs> but I, maybe, I don't know maybe she got, wants to me? reach out she, she, maybe she wants to reach out to people you know who have these issues or have these mm. thoughts or dark, dark thoughts and stuff and that there is help that you can go out there and get it you know back then there wasn't for people like bobby Gottson, i guess is, is maybe what she's trying to say and there's people you know or her own grandfather these illusions, or her own grandfather exactly yeah it's interesting stuff, um, and the book is interesting. I think it's going to hold an interesting place, um, maybe not in the hierarchy of the text that we've reviewed here on the show so far, and which we will do going forward, but certainly within the collection of Lighting the Pipes text. This is a curious one, and I'm, I'm really glad we've it's had curio, this chat. for sure. Uh, it was a, it was a yeah, great I mean, way yeah. to start the season. Great way to start the season, and 
before signing off, pal, do you want to say a little something about the upcoming episode of uh, LTP Noir that you've got almost ready for us? Yeah, I posted on Instagram. It's in the works now. Very soon, I will be reviewing uh, Pick Up on South Street by Samuel Fuller. Uh, if you don't know about Samuel Fuller, he was a very maverick filmmaker in Hollywood in the in the late 40s and 50s, and then he went full-blown independent afterwards. He's always been a very interesting figure in cinema. So it was it was cool to know that, you know, he actually did like a, a noir-esque film like in the early 50s, uh, Pickup. Uh, if you if you heard of it, uh, it's got Richard Widmark, uh, known for playing baddies. Um, he's really good in it, and uh, the story is really cool and uh, interesting. And um, there's a lot of political background to the story as well. So I think you'll find it a really interesting podcast. You know, you know, of my exploration of that film. So awesome. Yeah. And so if, and, and 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 anticipation. You know, before the podcast, if you could get a chance to go and see Pick Up on South Street, I recommend it. In terms of availability, I believe like it's on Criterion. That's how I got it. But I know that mm-hmm. you can get it elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You just got to kind of go look for it. But um, go look for it. It is, yeah. it is out there, and that and that's what I'll be handling next on lighting the pipes noir. Fantastic. Well, we look forward to that, and we look forward to all the great reading we've got set ahead uh, for the season. But uh, yeah, um, it's 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 cool, man. Uh, where was I going to go with that? Something. Oh yeah, the socials. Yeah, so thanks everybody for checking out this episode and uh, finding us on the socials at lightingpipes at gmail.com if you'd like to drop us an email or uh, pipes underscore pod on Instagram. You can check out our stuff there as well. As Josh said, we'll uh, we'll post when we got new stuff going on, reading ideas like that. So join in the fun, join in the reading, uh, whatever you're reading, uh, have fun doing it. And uh, thanks again for checking us out. We'll see you soon here on Lighting the Pipes. Bye.